It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Last time I preached at Hope, you were at the other location over there near Walmart, just off of Albemarle Road. So it's been a little while. That was when I first started at ACGC. So I haven't been with you all in, in a while. I was here uh, for a training. I did a training with, with some of the folks here for the uh, Darkness to Light training back in, was that August? I think it might have been August. Something along those lines. Anyway, so it was a couple of months ago, but I haven't been here to preach in a while. So it's good to be back with you. And, and uh, I'm Appreciate the invitation. Uh, hopefully things work out well for Brent and, and the family there, but uh, it is nice to have the opportunity to be over with you, so it's, that's a blessing for me anyway that came from this. But uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, that's where we're going to be this morning, 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at the first four b- verses. There's a lot you can get out of greetings and the, kind of the opening lines of a lot of these books, because a lot of the books of the Bible, especially when you look at the letters in the New Testament of Paul, of John, of James. These greetings, they kind of set the tone for the rest of the book. So you can get kind of a, a good big picture when you look at uh, the, just the opening lines of, a, of one of these books of exactly what the author's intent is and where he's driving at. So we're going to look at one of those openings this morning in 1 John 1. We're going to look at those first four verses. It starts out, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. That's a lot to take in. So let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful to be in your word this morning. We're so thankful for what we can gain from from the insight, the power, Lord, the work of your spirit in our lives through it. Lord, we just ask this morning as we tackle this, this passage together, Lord, we just ask for your presence to be in this place. We ask that your spirit would be the one guiding us, Lord. I ask that you would get me out of the way, get my junk out of the way, Lord, that, that your word would be the thing that rang true this morning. Lord, we are just so thankful for it, for its power, for its, its, its usefulness in our lives. Lord, it is profitable for the, so many things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And many people, when they look at the Bible, they, they think about simply an, an old book or a collection of ancient writings. Oftentimes, they think of it as a collection of ancient writings with no relevance to them at all. They see it as something that might have brought hope and meaning to a far less sophisticated society, but they don't see how it could hold any relevance for the complexities of the 21st century. But as you dive into the pages of Scripture, what you find instead is a marvelous work of art, a book penned by the author of life itself, and it tells of his story, his relationship with humanity, something that goes back to the very beginning of time. Through 66 books written by 40 different authors, 
all inspired by God himself, the book, this book starts out with, with our very creation. It tells of our fall. It lays out God's grand plan for the ultimate salvation from that fall. And it even gives us a small window, a small window into what's to come. And by the way, if that's not enough for you, there is much, much more for everyday life beyond that. And as we look at this short preface in 1 John, he actually kind of lays out this story for us. This story that goes back to the beginning of God's relationship with humanity and carries on in the person of Jesus Christ. In the opening verse he states, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with, with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He ties together this beautiful story for us, this unique story of God and man. And in doing so, ultimately, he lays out the foundation for our faith. And he does this, he does this with, with an emphasis unlike many of the other epistles of the New Te Testament. He's got a different focus. which The other epistles were often written in contrast to lay out the basic principles for the establishment of the church. But John's purposes were different. John is looking to establish some of the foundations of Christianity. The foundations of Christianity. Specifically in contrast to some false teaching that was taking place, that was floating around the church, even in these early days, which was causing some severe issues within the body and these local fellowships. You see, what was happening was that there were those that were emerging who were denying the idea that Jesus had actually come in the flesh in very literal, literal terms. They believed many of the other parts of the faith, but denied some of these key pieces of understanding about a literal Christ. So what we see here at the very beginning of 1 John is that the author seeks to address this misunderstanding very directly. And we see that this, this purpose becomes very evident even in verse 1 of chapter 1, where we're looking this morning. Our letter begins, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word life. Now you can see here in verse 1 a description, I suppose, the makings of an eyewitness account being built. There are a couple of things going on that we see, even in John's opening lines, that John's already dealing with some central pieces of the faith that were being lost. Beginning with this idea that the message of Jesus, the message of Jesus is something that dates back to the beginning of time. The message of Jesus is something that dates back to the beginning of time. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen. Now this statement is going to become the linchpin to everything that he's about to say. In many ways, you could argue that what is, what is found in verse 1 is essential to the remainder of John's message throughout the rest of the epistle. Without it, the rest of the epistle is essentially meaningless. And really, from a larger perspective, and we'll see this, these opening lines are central to the whole of the gospel as well. Because he starts off very clearly by stating unequivocally that this gospel message and all of its components, they're something that were in the works even from the beginning of time. And I think it's worth noting that John seems to find this important enough that, that, and central enough to everything else that he's about to say that he leads with it. Before anything else, he's suggesting that it's important for us to know that this message is one that far predates our existence and one that even dates back to the creation of everything. 
Folks, right off the bat, this points us to the notion that nothing that has happened throughout the course of history, nothing is a surprise to God. And that's important to us in 21st century America for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's important because it points us to to the sovereignty of God. It points us to the sovereignty of God. Why is that important? I'm glad you asked. So often when life hits us, when we're going through something, when, we, when we're dealing with troubled times especially, many of us wonder if God's even listening. Have you ever struggled with that? Have you wondered if God's ever listening? Have you wondered if he has any idea what's going on down here? And if he does, does he care? Have you ever struggled with those things before? I know I have. Hopefully I'm not the only one. We wonder if he has control over anything. I think to some degree that's a natural reaction for those of us who have been raised in the Western world especially. In a secularized society, we've been conditioned that way because sometimes it does feel like things are just spinning out of control. When we look at the state of the world, we find ourselves wondering if God has any, any clue what's really going on down here. And if so, what's he doing about it? When we see sin running rampant, when we see violence escalating, when we see natural disasters wiping out large numbers of people, we wonder, what is God doing? Does he understand what's happening? And you know, I I don't think this problem is anything that's necessarily new. There's certainly evidence of that kind of doubt at times, even in Scripture. Similar thoughts probably swirled for the Jews. Remember, they were a people that at the time of Christ's coming had endured oppression and struggles like we probably couldn't believe. They'd seen their nation overthrown. They'd seen through the centuries their people taken into captivity. And until Christ's coming, they had endured a long period of God's silence throughout all of that. But a passage like this, reminding us of the antiquity of the gospel message, gives us a reminder of God's clear sovereignty over all things, a reminder that he maintains control. This message and the object of that message predate everything. There isn't a more relevant message in any age, for any nation, for any group, for any individual I don't know all that you're going through as as individuals here, or even corporately as a body of believers. I'm not here with you every day. I'm not here every week, so I don't always know what's going on in the lives of a lot of churches that I'm preaching in, because I'm not with a lot of the churches that I preach in on a regular basis. That's one of the struggles oftentimes of working with ACGC, because I'm hopping around. I'm gone 20-plus Sundays a year, and and I I even miss out a lot on what's going on at the church I'm a part of. But I know some of you may be dealing with times of loss, or you may be dealing with with any number of illnesses and struggles in your personal lives. We've hit a period of relative uncertainty here on the national and global scale. You see things like, very recently, the Las Vegas shooting happening, and trying to make sense of that kind of stuff. I know on another level, there may be things you're working through as a church to try to figure out direction and and, and trying to seek guidance from the Lord on all of that. There are probably a lot of things going on in your lives right now as individuals and as a body of believers. But when you look at this message, given to us even right here in this opening line, no matter what the circumstances are, you can remember that God had and still has a plan. God had and still has a plan. A plan that began in ancient times. A plan of old. A plan that began long before it actually came to be. This was a plan in place long before anyone could have ever identified a single piece. 
Certainly then, with all the complexities we see in our lives, in our world, God's got some idea how to maneuver that stuff. But that's only one important piece. The sovereignty of God is only one thing we can glean from this, because the second thing is this. It speaks to who Christ is. This opening line speaks very directly to who Christ is. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. In this, the author is giving us a very clear picture of who Jesus is. When you read this, or when you read really anything written by John in Scripture, there's really no doubt that the author has an intimate knowledge of who it is that he's writing about. When he writes that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, you get a picture of someone who knows Jesus intimately. It's so similar to what we see in the opening lines of John's Gospel when he pens the words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Such similar expression we see in these two greetings. And folks, they paint a picture of the amazing nature of the one who came as the Savior of the world. John is writing of the one who was prophesied about. John is announcing that. The one who he's writing about, the one who he's sharing about, the one that, they, that, he'd, that they'd seen with their eyes, which they'd looked upon and had touched with their hands, is he which was from the beginning. It was he that was prophesied about. It was he that was prophesied to come as the Savior of the world. Isaiah brought to us these words, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. John is saying in no uncertain terms, that happened. That happened. The prophet's words have come true. What's amazing, folks, is that what John seems to be intending to pass on here is that this ancient plan of God, where he would come in the flesh as the Savior of the world, this had come to fruition. And not only that, but he and others, maybe others who John was writing to, in fact, they were witnesses to it. They were witnesses to this old, ancient message becoming this modern reality. This old thing becoming new. And John's telling them, ultimately, that this gospel message was not only an ancient plan, but was a modern reality as well. These ancient words had been lived out as a modern reality. And folks, the, the joy that we have and the relevancy that that holds to us is that this remains a modern reality for us as well, even today, 2,000-ish years later. That's an amazing truth. It's an amazing truth that we all get to share in. This is something that many people have, witnesses, have witnessed. One of the struggles, again, that was going on here, which was being addressed, was whether or not this Christ, this Messiah, had actually come in the flesh. Whether the words of the prophets had come true in a real, tangible, literal sense. Or what... The question that was being raised, was this just a figurative thing? Was this just metaphor? 
So John responds to this issue very directly, very much head on. He says that which was from the beginning, we've heard it, we've seen it, we've touched it in a very literal way. This word of life that we talk about, we've experienced it. We've experienced it. And not only that, verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it. In essence, folks, you could look, look at him as an eyewitness, as if in a court case. As you know, in our, our society, very often when a lawyer really wants a case to stick in court, he'll certainly dig for physical evidence, forensics, DNA, etc. But one of the most impactful things is when witnesses start to line up and you have multiple people who can say, I saw that person do it. That's big. The, the more witnesses that can testify to something, the better. Because that, that adds a, a huge degree of credibility to a case. When somebody can say, I can without a shadow of a doubt identify their face, and it was them who did it. And what's even more impactful than one witness, as I said, is many, many witnesses. That's almost a slam dunk, the more witnesses line up. And I'll tell you what, the eyewitnesses to all that Jesus did and said were countless, numerous, numerous witnesses. And John was offering himself up here with many, many others as some of those eyewitnesses, those who had experienced this ancient gospel message becoming reality. And folks, many had experienced this. The eyewitnesses to this whole occurrence of Jesus coming in the flesh and all that happened were numerous. He had the twelve that walked with him daily. Others who had regular interaction with him. He'd preached to thousands of people. He'd healed people. He'd talked with people. The masses worshipped him during what we refer to as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As he rode in on a donkey and palm branches were thrown down in front of him with the masses crying Hosanna. It was masses of people in that case. And then those same masses a week later watched him crucified. And then he rose again and appeared to a whole host of people until his final ascension into heaven after that. The witnesses were numerous. They were countless. But folks, the experience, the experience here is something that goes much deeper than that. Most, much deeper than just you know, having seen something. And that's what John's pointing to here. Because what we're seeing out of 1 John is the writing of one who's experienced Christ on a deeper level as well. Who's gotten to know Christ's heart and Christ's message in a very, very real way. One who experienced the authenticity of, of that message as well. One who's not only seen and heard Christ, but knows Him intimately. And as such, he not only speaks to the reality from a purely factual context, which was certainly important, but from a deep and meaningful experiential kind of context as well. As one who'd lived this, who'd received it, and who can testify to, who, to how this life, to how his life had been changed by it. And through doing so, he's able to illustrate how it can do the same for many, many others as well. And you see that in verse 1, and you, and you can kind of see that as he shifts gears a little bit here in verse 2, as he says, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And finally, 
We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Okay, so he's established the ancient nature of this message. He's established that this was a plan of God put in motion long before humans roamed the earth. And he's established himself as a physical witness to its fulfillment. And it even appears as though he's really experienced life change himself. He's, he's established a lot of things just in these first couple of verses. And now we see he shifts gears to proclaiming this message. So what we start to see is the power of this gospel message is something that will continue to impact lives. And that it is something that must be proclaimed. It's something that must be proclaimed. Because as we roll on, we start to see words like eternal life pop up. The eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Words that are very commonly known to us. Then he makes kind of an interesting statement. I'm going to shift gears from the eternal life. That's important, but we hear about that a lot. There's something else here that's very interesting to me that I want to point out to you. As he shifts gears, he says, That which we have heard, or which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, that statement may not seem all that interesting to you, but it is to me. So we're going to talk about it. I've discovered and been told mostly by my wife that, that it's possible that many things that I find interesting aren't that interesting to other people. <laughs> but nonetheless, this is who you asked to come and speak. I know the bench got pretty deep this week, but that's who you asked to come speak this week, so that's what you're stuck with. This is interesting, though, and I think it's very interesting for for a really big reason. It's primarily due to one thing. The emergence of fellowship as something that's a primary benefit to the spread of the gospel is very interesting. It's very interesting. Because, folks, you don't hear fellowship talked about all that much as if it's something that's, that's primarily beneficial to the spread of the gospel. You don't. We talk about fellowship as the church, you know, and it's great that we can get together and we can share this common life, and we talk, but we don't talk about it as this major league, this central benefit to the gospel message becoming real in our lives. But that's what John's getting at here. That's how John chooses to illustrate this. When we speak of the benefits of entering into the Christian life, we tend to focus almost completely on the eternal life and, and some of those other things like hope and peace, all very important things, very central life-changing things. But we leave out the fellowship portion. And you know what? Fellowship with Christ is really where it starts. But it builds from there. Fellowship is something that often gets lost, but perhaps it's because we don't always have a real full grasp on what that term even means. I don't think we do. I don't always know that I'm, it's, going on, it's going on in my head as I'm thinking about about that term as it relates to the church. But when we look in 1 John, um, the Greek word translated fellowship here is probably one that some of you have heard before. It's the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia. It occurs here in verse 3 and then again in verse 6. It's not a word that's very easily put into English. And that's maybe part of the problem. It's not easily translated in English. There's not a real good direct translation for koinonia. It has been translated fellowship, communion, it's been translated participation, it's been used in reference to sharing a common life or partnership, it's been used for social clubs. In Hellenistic culture, you find the word used to describe partners in business or joint owners of a piece of property. In the New Testament, it most commonly refers to Christians who share a common faith or who share possessions or who are partners in the gospel. 
but even more impactful than just about any other way this is used. And this, this word occurs this way over 60 times in the New Testament. Is when it's used in reference to the supernatural life that Christians share in together. The supernatural life that Christians share in together. And this supernatural life is one that's disclosed exclusively, exclusively in the incarnate Christ. It is the eternal life that comes from the Father and becomes the life shared individually and corporately by believers. Or in other words, koinonia refers to the life that we share in as individuals with Christ, as well as together as a Christian family, as his church. And it is this koinonia that is what causes the oneness that we have in the faith. It is how the church can be referred to collectively, all of us, all of us, as the bride of Christ, as the single, united thing, and why we have such a responsibility to one another. It's why we have such a responsibility to one another, no matter what our differences may be. What John is getting at here is that the koinonia is the union in common faith brought about by the proclamation of that faith. In other words, proclaiming this faith brings about a common bond that can only be found in the object of that proclamation. It can only be found in and through Jesus and nowhere else. Nowhere else. You can try to find it other places. You're not going to find what you see here with the type of fellowship that John is referring to here. You're not going to find it anywhere else but in the body of Christ among true believers in him. Brunner says of this fellowship that it is the combining of the vertical with the horizontal, ultimately the divine God with the human us, that constitutes the utterly unparalleled life that believers are able to share in. And I don't think that's something that we take seriously enough. It is this koinonia that makes the Christian life ultimately as powerful as it has the capability to be. Isn't that amazing? So, the picture we get here is that this koinonia is something that John is trying to demonstrate as life-changing. He's not just saying, you know, hey, you know, we, we tell you this stuff so you can get saved and then you can come hang with us at a fellowship dinner after church. That's the most common use of the term, by the way, I think, is in relation to fellowship dinners, and there's nothing wrong with them. I really love fellowship dinners. I was at one last week at a church in Massachusetts. It was awesome. But fellowship goes much, much further than just hanging out for an hour after church. That's part of it, but it's much, much bigger than just that. It's so important that we understand that this fellowship is directly tied up in relationship with Jesus. This fellowship that exists and allows, us for, allows for fulfillment, this eternal life that comes, all of it, all of it, is completely tied up within a relationship with Jesus. It all begins with fellowship with Him. All of it. And this fellowship ultimately comes through faith. It comes through our faith in Him. It cannot exist without him at the center of it all. But folks, with him, and I'll begin to wrap up with this, with him, we have the opportunity to take part in something that dates back to the beginning of time. Something that was made reality and was witnessed by so many, and something that continues to have very real impact on lives all around the world. 
Because folks, as many of us in this room know, the amazing impact of this message is something that knows no bounds. It knows no bounds. It touches hearts in ways that just couldn't be done without God's power at work. It's a message that 20 years or so ago transformed me. It's a message that has transformed many in this room. A friend of mine a few years back by the name of Terry Sullivan was called to Jacksonville, Florida, to plant a church. Terry had become an Advent Christian minister through an unlikely connection with our camp in Virginia, Camp Kovac. I don't even really understand how he got connected still. It was a whole host of weird circumstances that led him there. Well, there he and I became friends, and, I, and we certainly shared a deep and meaningful fellowship in Christ. He became one of my best friends. Through that fellowship, um, I introduced Terry to um, one of the directors at ACGC. And that director got him hooked up with the Florida Conference, who ultimately called Terry to plant a church down there in Jacksonville. Now, to many onlookers, Terry's whole experience would have made very little sense for a variety of reasons that I probably just don't have time to get into. It would have seemed like coincidence upon coincidence that led Terry down to Florida. And what's more, it would have been even more ridiculous to many to see the various types of people that eventually made up this new fellowship called Faith First Community Church as it was eventually called. This church was made up of some of the most unlikely participants. In this church, Terry had drug dealers come to Christ and worship alongside bankers, making six figures a year. He had gang members worshiping alongside police officers. Terry actually was a former police officer, something he's doing again now. One of my favorite stories that Terry told me is actually of a gang leader and a banker. One day, a gang leader came into his church, essentially, and the first person to walk up to him and greet him was, the, was an executive at one of the banks there in Jacksonville. A guy who used to come into church in a three-piece suit every week. These two men become great friends and shared a wonderful fellowship in Christ. They ate at each other's houses. They, they sat together and worshipped alongside each other in church. It was, it was just an amazing friendship that, that really made no sense for any other reason but Jesus. They had absolutely no reason to even be in the same room together except Christ. None. None whatsoever. What other place would that happen? It just wouldn't. Those situations are a picture of this koinonia. People of all different races, all different kinds of backgrounds, all together having nothing in common but one thing. But that one thing is huge. This old message, this ancient message, is something that made them new. Folks, it's a message of hope, a message of love, a message of deep and meaningful fellowship, and even of pain and suffering as well. It's got it all. The gospel has it all. And still we know, as John writes here, that our joy is yet to be made complete. The present joy and fellowship is only but a token expression of the joy that awaits us in the second coming of Jesus Christ our Lord, the one whom we share about in this gospel message. This final coming of Jesus, once we have proclaimed this message to the world, is the point where our joy will be made complete. It will be at that time where we'll know no more pain, we'll know no more suffering. And at that same time, where we'll know true fellowship with God in a way that we just can't experience due to the sin in our lives. We'll experience fellowship with other, other people in a whole new way. A way that we have but a small window into today. 
If we will only enter into this fellowship with him, this koinonia, we will see this old, old message have the power to make us new. Many of us know that already. If you don't, I'd encourage you to it. It brings you into something that is just amazing today, but it is but a shadow of what we will see at his coming. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful to be in your presence this morning. We're so thankful for the message that you have given to us, this gospel message, this one where one who was of old came in the flesh. You ultimately came in the flesh, died for our sins, rose again, ascended into heaven. So many witnessed it. So many experienced it. So many lives have been changed by it for 2,000 years. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, lead us as we go out today. May we bring others into this fellowship. May we not take this fellowship lightly. May we know the, the true power that it has in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.